I'm old enough to have bow hunted prior to rangefinders, and I can tell you right now they are a must. <laughs> like I want a grunt tube that's going to have a snorwees capability. What's he thinking whenever he hears that? If he's going to come, he's going to come on the upwind side of me. He is the he's the man, the king buck. That adrenaline on game day is very different than you know practice or training. It's not a surprise or a shock when that happens worry about the good times after so that you can do it in those moments without thought 100 percent. Hey everybody, welcome to the Hoyt Bow Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Danny Ferris, and today I'm joined with a guest host, uh, Josh Josh Sparks from uh, Midwest Whitetail. How's it going, Josh? It's going well, man. We are finally, well, it just happened. That was a <laughs> start. I'll start it again. I'll yeah, start, we're uh, not too far into it. This is easy. <laughs> so cut, editor. We're going to restart. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Hoyt Bow Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Danny Ferris. And today I'm joined by our guest host and whitetail expert, Josh Sparks from Midwest Whitetail. And we are going to be answering some questions from our friend Tyler Christoffel, who is in central Tennessee. And this is kind of cool podcast because this is a this is a guy who is brand new to bow hunting whitetails. And what we're going to be doing is just taking some questions from Tyler and hopefully anybody out there, whether you're brand new to it or whether you have been doing it a long time, hopefully some of these questions that Tyler asks of me and Josh um, will get your wheels spinning on maybe a different outlook on some things and maybe give you some new ideas. Hopefully everybody learns something from it and uh, hopefully it's a little bit entertaining too, but Anyway, well, welcome both of you to the podcast, Tyler and Josh. Absolutely. It's good to be here. I'm excited for this one. I mean, it's finally deer season. Thanks for having us on. Yep. And uh, one thing that we've got to remember, all three of us can see each other, but mm -hmm. our audience can't. So, uh, Josh, um, it's been a while since we had you on. Thanks for coming on kind of short notice and doing this and, and answering some of these questions that I might not. Uh, as a Western guy, have as good an insight in as, as you do, man. How's uh, you were just saying you're excited to get the season finally rolling? Yeah, man, it's what is it, October 10th here? So in Iowa, we're 10 days into the fall. And uh, one of our guys, a Midwest Whitetail on regular, just shot his biggest buck to date, 215 inch giant. So we've had a lot of celebrating already here. And I want to be clear you said uh whitetail expert any sort of knowledge that i have coming down the pipes because of being surrounded by great people you know my entire bow hunting career people answering questions like these that we're going to cover today for me so i, I don't certainly want to take much credit for quote unquote any knowledge that i have i mean i think that that's the coolest thing about the hunting community but especially the bow hunting community is that you know everybody is a wealth of knowledge in their own right and is usually pretty free in sharing that. So I'm excited for it today. Awesome, man. Well, like I said, uh, you grew up out there in the Midwest and have been doing this a heck of a long time now. 
and have also had some pretty good resources around you. So in my opinion, my humble opinion, Josh Sparks is a whitetail expert. I'm not afraid to say it. Um, <laughs> and I'm glad to have you on here to help me out. Now, Tyler, tell us your story, yes, man. Um, brand new to bow hunting and what, what got you rolling, got you pumped up to do it this year. So I got into CrossFit seven or eight years ago. I've been doing that consistently professionally for the last five years. And, uh, I moved to Cookville, Tennessee two years ago. Um, and a buddy of mine, his name is Rich Froning. I trained with him and oh, yeah. his crew here and his crew here in Tennessee. Um, I had, I had some interest in doing some bow hunting, but I always kind of stayed away from it just because I know the investment that it is and, you know, the time that it, it can become. So as I was, you know, getting deeper and deeper into CrossFit, I thought for my personality and maybe it just, maybe it'd just be safest if I stayed away from Facebook marketplace and just buying a bow and figuring it out on my own. And then two years ago, he, they invited me to go on a hunt with him. And I went out there with not a whole lot of knowledge, but just the couple hands that I could try to help out and learn as much as I could. And then after two years of doing that hunt out in Colorado, uh, this year, I didn't go to that, but I wanted to get my license licensed and permits here in Tennessee to be able to get out in the woods and still learn from some other guys, uh, somewhere in that process linked up with Evan. And then he, uh, he said, Hey man, you mind putting together like a list of questions and basically being like the dummy or Guinea pig for asking questions that maybe people are scared to ask or that I had to ask, you know, early on. So here we are. These are my questions long, for someone. Long that's... story short, Froning wrote, led you down the rabbit hole and now you are screwed. <laughs> <laughs> he kind of, yeah, the, the, there was a little bit of interest there. And then he kind of, yeah, he, yeah. he kind of yeah. said, Hey, let's go do this. And I'm like, all right, let's, let's try it out. Well, if you've got one of those competitive personalities, like it sounds like you do, um, mm -hmm. this can be a very addicting experience and it, it, addicting in a good way, um, sure. but addicting nonetheless. And man, this will be, this will be really cool to answer some of your questions going into your first whitetail season. You're in, sounds like you're in pretty good country down there. Um, mm -hmm. So why don't you just fire away, man? All right. I got my list here. So, um, so I kind of started off with the gear and, uh, one of my, my first question and probably several questions after that were, uh, basically entry level, uh, what should I expect to pay for a basic set of gear? I think like, you know, there, there's lots of gear options and all that. So getting into it, what's, what's something I can expect for like the bare, you know, the bare minimum, the bare bones and kind of go over like some of the clothing and the stuff that you need to get out into the woods. Four whitetails specifically. Okay. Well, um, yeah. so you want to try and attack it on a budget first, Josh? Yeah. I mean, I think that there's obviously a lot of options out there, man. And, you know, if we're sharing from our certain perspectives for me, you know, bow hunting is an all in type of sport. And I mean, there's a lot of opinions on this. And when I think about clothes, you know, I'm sure that we'll get into this. There's a lot of different opinions on scent control and layering systems. And, you know, where we're at in the Midwest here, though, it's nothing like the West where, you know, you have so much variation, even in a single day, you know, something I take pretty seriously. And, you know, I am investing some pretty nice change, you know, into my systems, you know, my early season, midweight, heavyweight, you know, they're all designed for a particular usage uh, cost of that. You know, I, I personally would not be going into the the used realm, but I mean, you're, you know, you're going to get what you pay for, you know, when it comes to a good piece of apparel, I'm sure it's no different than the CrossFit world. Right. Sure. Um, 
So I wouldn't skimp if there's one thing that I would always put the most money into. It's a really good base layer and a good layering system because if you can't be out there and you can't be out there comfortable and you can't be out there focused, you know, that moment that you've been working so hard for each season, you never know when it's going to come. So, um, you know, as far as an actual dollar amount, I mean, I really don't even know. I mean, it, there's such a wide range, but I would not, if my thing is if you want it and you've researched it and it looks good to you, save your money until you can afford it. That would be my, my perspective. Yeah. Mine, you know, I'm at the age where my kids are now doing some of this on their own and they're at that same point that I was in my early twenties where they don't have a pot to piss in. Mm -hmm. And, uh, literally when they go on some of these hunts, they're staying in the back of their truck or whatever, you know, just doing it. A lot of times those guys, they don't, they hardly have the gas money to get there. So when it comes to getting their equipment, um, to do it on a, a bargain basis, I, th I think you've got a whole lot better options than you used to. I mean, literally you can, you can go with some high end gear like Sitka or Kuyu Browning, uh, and, and buy some really expensive stuff. But however, there are less expensive options available these days. And I, you can walk into Walmart and you can find a pair of Merino base layers in there a lot of times. Um, they might not fit as comfortably. They might not, you know, have as cool a camo pattern. They might, you know, whatever. Um, sure. but they are viable options. So literally you could probably walk into uh, a budget place like Walmart and come out of there with a layering system and maybe spend $250, mm -hmm. Um, or you can go ahead and, you know, as, as time goes on and based upon your, uh, experience with it. And, you know, if, if you go out there and experience what I think you're going to, eventually you're going to want to spend more than that on some stuff that's just, you know, built a little bit better. Um, and you're going to end up in some apparel that might cost you up, you know, close to a thousand dollars for an entire set, you know, maybe even more than that. But between that and your bow, um, you know, once again, you can start out with a bow package that's going to cost you, you know, brand new off the shelf, 600, $700 with all your accessories on there, or you can go ahead and, and buy the bow that you want to have for the next six, seven years, you know, and spend a whole lot more than that. But, you know, all in, I think that, um, if somebody's smart, they can probably get into it, uh, with, with their, with their, their bow set up and, you know, using the apparel that they have or buying some new apparel to go along with things. And, you know, you can probably get in there at under a thousand dollars, you know, to start out. Yeah, sure. no. that was going to be my my next question was the weapon. So I got what what should I expect to pay for a basic set of gear? And I got clothes here, and then weapon as a question mark. And that's perfect perfect answer there. Okay. Yeah. No, Dan. I mean that. Or excuse me. Oh, you did get a change. Sorry, cut this. My bad. 
Jeremy almost said that my fault. <laughs> um, now you brought up a great point, Danny. I mean, as far as like you did, equipment doesn't, you know, lead to success. And I think that that might be no. a fallacy that has been introduced, no doubt into the, the hunting communities that if I have the nicest gear, I'm going to have more success. But I mean, even like trying to create parallels in the CrossFit world, mentality, effort, preparation, that's always going to outweigh your equipment, you know? So, um, you made a comment too, like one of the things that's a resource that's crazy is like Facebook marketplace. I mean, you can find the internet, you know, can be a good resource. It can also be a bad resource, but you know, used equipment, used camo, you know, there's a lot of viable options out there as well. It sounds like you've got a very, you know, solid resource team in the hunting space already. So, I mean, it, thousand dollars is definitely a doable thing and probably come under that if you're looking into the used world yeah for sure cool for sure and on the on the weapon on the weapon side of it what usually how long can i expect you know let's say i go with a newer weapon maybe a you know a a more budget-friendly model how long do i am i looking at uh expecting to have that weapon five years, 10 years. Oh, as long as you, the the only thing that should wear out on that, if you buy Hoyt, the only thing that you're going to have to replace are strings and cables. If you take care of that thing, eventually those will get worn out, but it takes a heck of a long time. If you don't drag your, your bow through the brush as you're going in and doing things like that, you protect it a little bit. Those will last you a very long time. So it's just a matter of how long you want to keep that thing. And there's something to be said with getting comfortable for a bow, you know, or with a bow. Long time ago, you know, when I, I've been in the, the media end of things for a while and I started getting new bows on a consistent basis and I thought it was great. Well, I'll tell you what, sometimes you just start to get comfortable with a bow after about a year and all of a sudden it's time to jump into a new one again and you can be oh man sometimes you don't want to put that older one down um Mm -hmm. you know i think on average your average consumer probably keeps the same bow setup for probably about five years you're more serious people trade them out more often than that but easily you can you can get five years out of that bow and if you wanted to stretch stretch it to a decade or more you certainly could if that's what you decided you wanted to do Yep. Not, I couldn't answer that any more perfectly. I mean, I've been fortunate to get to shoot new models almost every year since I started working, like you mentioned in the media aspect of things, but no doubt you find the one that you love and the technology continues to get better and get better and get That's better right. wrong. But at the end of the day, comfort, you know, that weapon, it becomes kind of a part of you. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's dumb bows that, feel hundred percent right. And I mean, that's, you know, utilize your pro shop, you know, go and, you know, shoot as many different options you can. Evan obviously is going to be able to be a fantastic resource of, you know, not just what's cool, what looks cool, but like what mods do you need to be in? And that's something I wouldn't, you know, if I was purchasing a bow, I don't think I would go the route of just buying. That would be the one thing that if I was going to put a hundred percent of my resource dollar wise into think of it from the perspective of I'm going to have this for the next five to 10 years, pay attention to the small details, what riser fits you the best, you know, make sure your draw length, make sure all of the, you know, it's harder to break bad habits. And so if you buy one thing, I I worked in an archery shop at Shields back when I was in college 
And I can't tell you how many folks would come in they'd be like, yeah, I had this first bow, you know, it was passed down to me. And they build all these really bad habits of where they anchor and how they draw and their poundage is way too heavy. And then you're like, it, it's hard to undo those. Whereas if you go mm-hmm. in, like, I'm brand new, set me up. Let's pay attention to those really small details and develop good habits on the front end. Man, it's a very different experience for folks. So utilize pro shop, you know, utilize that expert knowledge that those guys offer. And uh, I think you would be happy to put Josh, Josh just touched on something that I personally feel is very, very important. And that's making sure that you're not overboat. Everyone feels like they have to go in there and they have to get a 70 pound bow at the minimum. Otherwise they're, you know, they're, they don't feel quite as manly or something. In my honest opinion, you need to be able to draw that bow slowly and controlled without moving your bow arm, without putting your arm up in the air or down toward the ground. And you need to be able to take that string straight back to your nose with as very little movement as possible. If you can't do that cold and, and that's a key because when you're in the whitetail world woods, half the time you've got this buck coming in and you feel like everything is silent. You are freezing to death and shivering up there a little bit. And any little extra movement can be the difference in whether you get this shot or not. And it's vitally important for you to be able from your seated position or an awkward position to be able to draw your bow like that in order to get that shot. If it requires you to make this extra movement, raising your arm up in the air, that that's it. It's over. You're not going to get away with things like that. A lot of times in the whitetail woods. And I, I, I just can't tell you how many times I've seen guys head out there with 70 pound bow. And, you know, when they actually should have been shooting like 60. Yep, sure. um, and it, it is, in my opinion, it is far more important for you to be able to draw that bow properly controlled without extra motion than it is to have that little bit of extra performance that you get out of the extra poundage. Yep. And building yeah. off of that, you talk about getting back to full draw. Think about the situations where just because you're a full draw doesn't mean you're going to get shot. Right. You let it back down and not let them know. Cause I mean, yeah. I can't tell you personal experience wise or hunts that I've edited. There's a lot of deer that have died on that second draw. Yeah. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, you got to consider layering. That's another aspect. Yep. You know, it's super easy to say all things are great in the summer, 70 pounds, Wearing a standing up on the practice range, you know, mm-hmm. can you do that at a different angle? Can you do that sitting down? So, yeah, I mean, there's there's no room for ego there. Who cares if you shoot sixty pounds? One of the best archers I know, and Mark Drury shoots, you know, in that mid fifties range, and he shoots bigger deer than most people will ever dream of. So, you know, I think it just comes down to again, if we're talking about the equipment, just don't overlook trying to build great habits on the front end. You know, I mean, it, you have to have ultimately confidence in what you're shooting. The dollar amount does not, it is not indicative sure. of that confidence, but the details do matter. Pay attention to your draw length, pay attention to your anchor points, poundage, like we just talked about. I mean, it, yeah. things you yeah, shouldn't I like to, about in the moment sure. of truth. I like to tip on trying different trying different ones and seeing what's most comfortable for you. There's no best case scenario. You know, it's, it's, 
specific to each individual, what's most comfortable. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like a Hoyt for me is by far my favorite bow in the world because I prefer a very smooth draw cycle and I can come right back down with it. You know, there's a lot of awesome bow companies out there, but from a bow hunting perspective, whitetail specifically, like I said, I mean, I take that very seriously to be able to get back down without having to just, you know, jerk That's all right. that mm-hmm. down. Again. And that again, it's, I want to be able to be as confident in that moment as possible, you know, yeah. and that, I mean, at the end of the day, I've, Killed a lot of deer, luckily, with the Hoyts, and I uh, hope to do so in the future. So, cool. And then on the last thing that with the bow is the uh, broadhead. I, I've seen things on mechanic. Is it the mechanical broadhead versus the fixed broadhead? What's I'm going whitetail hunting. What's my best option there? Does it matter? Is it fill me in there? Just mm. um, man, there's a lot of varying opinions on this. Uh, you know, personally, I feel like the mechanical um broadhead market has made some drastic techno technological improvements over the years um typically with a white tail sized animal um barring some of the biggest ones out there um with the the speed that i'm shooting and the weight of my arrows and just doing the 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 math on kinetic energy i'm not usually worried about taking a whitetail at almost any angle, you know, at a reasonable range with a mechanical broadhead. Um, there are animals where I feel much more comfortable shooting a fixed blade broadhead, like an elk or a moose, something big, big, big boned heavy where your, your, your penetration, uh, you've got to get more to be able to get both lungs. And that's the key. You know, you're the whole key is trying to make sure that you've got enough penetration from about any angle that you're going to shoot at the vitals on that animal to pop both of those balloons. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, if you are shooting a lighter setup, then maybe you need to do a little math, look for recommendations on momentum and kinetic energy and, and rethink that just a little bit. Um, There's no doubt that fixed blade broadheads are more difficult to get to fly accurately your bow setup your tune has to be much more precise to get them to fly as accurately as a mechanical broadhead um but depending upon where you're hunting in most whitetail states your average shots 35 or under and you know it's 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 not as critical on those fixed blade broadheads i don't think that as long as you've got a fixed blade broadhead flying well that it's ever a bad choice um uh but i do like the large holes that are left by mechanicals you know and i feel like i've i feel like i've had i might have been bitten once or twice in my career by a mechanical broadhead maybe but I've probably had them save my tail at least a half a dozen times. Yeah, no, I'm definitely on that same uh, wavelength. I mean, for me, hierarchy of things I'm worried about. Number one is going to be accuracy out of the box. I mean, there's so many options in the mechanical world. They're going to fly like a field point. And for most folks who maybe don't have the time or maybe even the resource to tune to the level that required that is required for a lot of those fixed blade options. You cannot beat that, you know, ease of use. Second thing that I'm really worried about is, and 
Well, let's take a step back. I mean, you always hear about the penetration. I'm sure when you're looking at the uh, fixed broadhead argument, FOC, going to get through those shoulder blades, get a complete pass through wound channels on both sides, et cetera. And don't get me wrong. That's really important. But at the end of the day, I mean, like you kind of alluded to just now, I've been saved by uh, a fix or excuse me, an expandable broadhead with a wound channel, you know, that I would definitely not have gotten on a smaller diameter cut. You know, it's like one of the people I respect most. It's if you hit between the legs, you're going to want to have a uh, big hole. You're going to want to have a big hole. So the other thing that, you know, I hear as an argument for the fixed broadhead is the idea of like, you can reuse them and they stay sharp and all these things. And for me, man, if I shoot a deer with a broadhead, that broadhead's gone to me. I mean, I'm, I'm not really worried about reusing it. You know what I mean? I just want to make an ethical shot at any distance. And at the end of the day, I, for me, the, the mechanical, like you said, I mean, I'm only 27. So I, I haven't been around for the entire, you know, uh, technology advancement of those broadheads. I knew people always talk about, do they open up properly, et cetera. I think in today's world, you probably have a pretty high, you know, belief in that, um, blood trails are really nice, but at the end, it's funny on our show, uh, we get a lot of times, it doesn't go through the offside shoulder. You didn't get good penetration and the deer dies on camera and people still aren't happy with it. And I'm like, I, I don't know what else you want. I mean, that internal damage is what really matters. And you, you can't get on a two inch cutter better. So. Got it. And then on the last thing is, uh, when I'm going out, I'm preparing, you know, for the white tail hunt. Um, what are, what are a few things just outside of the clothes and the weapon that you find absolutely necessary. So you're going out for your hunt. You, maybe you got a pack on you or something. What else? What are a couple of things you're taking with you that you recommend? A deer tag, mm-hmm. first and foremost. <laughs> one thing sure, yeah. yeah. No? Uh-huh. As that sounds. Um, range finder is a huge one for me. Oh, say, You know, I, I, I choose to use a, you know, adjustable pin sight. And while, you know, I've got 20 and 30 already there. You know, anytime that I have, you, we talked about usually 35 and under, that's for sure accurate, but anytime that I can have pinpoint accuracy, super important. But the other aspect is when I first sit down, I'm able to choose my marks ahead of time. You know, if you're guessing that that tree is at an X amount, think about if you're even shooting a fixed pin site, you sit down for that first hunt in Tennessee, you got a trail here, you got a crossing there. You can be sitting there and visualizing that moment. You know, if the deer comes here, he's going to be at 25, 35 there, 40 here, 17 there. And so it just, you know, you don't want to wait for that moment and be like, ah, I think it was this, you know what I mean? So range finder is super invaluable. That would be the one thing I, I carry two with me at all times, one in the truck, one in the bag, just in case something happens. Um, you know, you hear a lot of guys that say you should be able to range without them, but I mean, it's a resource that I'm very happy to, to, to use. Sure. I'm old enough to have bow hunted prior to range finders. And I can tell you right now, they are a must. <laughs> like that is, that's the biggest piece of equipment that completely changed the, the, the sport. Um, so yeah, he's exactly right. Our, a range finder, um, is, is number one on the list. Um, I've got a little bag that I call my possibles pouch that goes in my pack 
on any hunt that I go on anywhere. And it's just a bag of stuff that is designed to have a jam if I need it. It's got things like parachute cord and zip ties and some duct tape and, you know, maybe a little marker and, uh, you know, some odds and ends like that, a little bitty first aid kit. Um, you know, those, that possibles pouch goes with me on just about anything. And it has, you know, all of those items. Oh, a multi-tool is in there. Um, it's just designed to get you out of any kind of jam that you might find yourself getting into. You get up there in a tree and the doggone, you know, something breaks, something, uh, something falls apart. You you go to hang your dang bow on the, uh, on the hanger and and the hanger breaks down out of the tree you got some backups for all that stuff you know but that's that's about it uh as long as i've got the right apparel on to keep myself you know in the game then uh it's you you don't really need that much okay so switching gears a little bit outside of like the gear and all that is uh when it comes to strategy and my whenever I think about like whitetail bow hunting, the first thing that comes to mind is uh, sitting up in a tree, like into a tree stand, and and waiting, playing the waiting game with whitetail. Um, is tree stand hunting the only option for whitetail? Is that what you would highly recommend? Kind of fill me in on some some strategies slash plans you would take going in to uh, like your first season if if no one took you out and showed you. Yeah, I man, I here in Iowa, I. Here's what I'll say. You cannot be living 20 feet up, you know, just from an enjoyment aspect, man, there's just nothing better than seeing the world come alive, you know, and nature just starting to appear around you. But reality is, is like, it's not the only option. I mean, right now on a new property that I got access to, it's a permission farm. I actually don't have any trees. It's made of CRP and I'm utilizing a bail blind, um, you know, pop-up blinds are a good option. You know, at the end of the day, what a tree stand offers you, in my opinion, is the ability to process more information. You know, a lot of times I think guys think the first tree that they are is going to be the kill tree. You know, a lot of guys on our team use a tree stand to be more mobile, Um, sit far away, watch what you're trying to see. And you can only see so much from the ground. You know what I mean? And like, don't get me wrong. That's a good option. But when you're getting really intrusive and you know, leaving a bunch of ground scents on your entry, on your exits, trying to, you know, get that bow shot. There's a lot of factors that come into play. So it's not the only option, but I think it is one of the best options, if that makes sense. And, you know, we could spend a lot of time talking about that, but a good tree stand and a mobile tree stand, I know that's a big, uh, you know, I don't want to use the word phenomenon, but it's a trend. You know, everybody wants to hunt lighter, whether that's in a tree stand or a saddle, I think you, you had a lot of things to your arsenal to be mobile. And when you're in the air, you can start diving into, you have more shot selections. You know, that's one thing you can't overlook. If you're on the ground, you get, you know, maybe one or two spots you could shoot, or you have different shooting lanes, depending on your cover on the ground, assuming you're on the ground and have cover. Cause you're going to need that. You don't have a lot of shooting lanes. You get 20 foot in the air. You don't even need to be 20 foot in the air, but. Yeah, more shooting lanes. You can use thermals better to your advantage, especially on different morning sets. And like I said, you can just see more. And so if you had a slow hunt on the ground, because you can only see X amount of yards if you're in that tree and you can see twice or three times as far, you get twice as three times as much information. So 
I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but. Well, I, you know, number one, I think that your primary tactics are dictated by the terrain that you're hunting in. Yep. Um, and, you know, in certain areas, there's just no doubt that, you know, a tree stand is the, is the best one. Or if I'm hunting my home ground here that I've been hunting for a long time, um, you know, I've got stands that have been hung over the last however many years and we've got them in locations where you know it's key and you've got a place to go immediately but i do when i go on a hunt away from home especially if it's a place where you know i'm going in and it's a diy type thing you know i've got a tree stand in my truck i've got a saddle in my truck i've got a ground blind in my truck Mm -hmm. and then um i've also got my decoys and i do a lot of whitetail hunting in the plain states and so my outlook is a little bit different i utilize decoys heavily and i also use them in um in the midwest in the more open areas um but once again that's typically during the rut that i'm doing that um prior to the rut i'm always looking for some sort of ambush when the you know because it's a completely different game right now in the early season these deer are patternable you know what they're doing there you know kind of where their home core is you can set up a ground blind on them and things like that when it gets closer to the rut where you don't know where they're going to be depending upon the terrain that you're hunting that dictates which tactic i'm going to try and employ and if i'm hunting a place that is wide open and has lots of visibility and there's you know a a, uh not a very good selection of trees i'm going to employ ground tactics and Mm. 90 percent of the time if it's past the third week of october those ground tactics will employ a decoy yep so anyway there's there's plenty of ways to skin the cat but i in my opinion a lot of those decisions are going to be dictated by the terrain that you're in and how thick the cover is and what kind of cover you're dealing with and whether you've got uh uh you know what kind of timber you're dealing with mm-hmm. got it yeah the next question i had too was uh right along those lines is, is there a particular style of stand and it sounds like the mobile option is kind of what's trending now is that right yeah yeah absolutely i mean i think that this is where we go back to the whole cost idea i mean my recommendation would be buy one really good set of whatever it is you go with i mean there's a lot of options out there in the tree stand world you can get some for 70 bucks you know at your local menards or walmart and you can get you know the high hundreds you know if i'm not mistaken sure. hanging hunt setups now they're like five six seven eight hundred dollars yeah um but wow. at the end of the day when it comes to a tree stand one thing i'll say is like that is definitely not a place that I'm going to skimp on, you know, paying for something because it's what gets me up and it's what gets me down and back home safe. Um, that extra weight isn't always necessarily a big deterrent, but at the same time, being able to be quiet mobile is a, I, I honestly have never uh, saddle hunted. So I, I don't really have much of an opinion there. I've done a lot of hanging hunts before. And, you know, again, thinking about the, 
what's the particular style. I like to be mobile, start wide. It's kind of like you're talking about the great, you know, the plains region. Like if you're on the ground, you know, if I was in that setting, I'd still start, where can I scout and see most? Can I get up on a hill? Yeah. On a hill. Um, you know, there's, there's just a lot of options where being mobile just allows you to ingest information as you try to pick the X. I mean, you hear that a lot in waterfowl, you know, those guys watch a field and drive around and they land in this field and they're like, that's where we need to be. Um, so, you know, particular stand styles, whatever allows you to be the most flexible or, you know, even ground blinds, you could argue the exact same thing. Some are really heavy, some are cumbersome to set up and some pop up in 30 seconds. So, I mean, when you're thinking about what to buy, consider, you know, you had to react super quickly, which one would allow you to be the most successful. Sure. Yeah. I like the thing on the, you know, it enables you to gather as much information as possible. And that's ultimately like, that's what you're trying to get to. Mm -hmm. Um, cool. And then on kind of staying in that lane too, is, uh, the question on calls. Um, I've seen them, I've heard them. And this is coming from, again, someone who's never gone out and done it on my own, super foreign to me. Like I would have no idea what I'm doing. Are they necessary? Um, what's your take on calling, learning how to call or starting out with calls? Who goes first? Uh, I'll, I'll give you m my opinion real quick on, on calls. It, it, they're, they're certainly not necessary. Um, however, there are lots of deer that have died that mm. wouldn't have died because somebody knew when to blow a call or, or when to rattle, mm -hmm. um, knowing, educating yourself on when to do it is much more important than the quality of the sound that you make or anything like that. Um, you know, I, I'll bet that Josh, you know, most big buck killers, that I know want to remain invisible. They, they don't want to tip their, you know, tip their presence to that deer at all, whether he, you know, uh, they're, they're strictly trying to ambush him mm -hmm. or me personally, part of the thrill a lot of times is doing something proactive to make that deer do what I want them to do. And which is part of the reason that I get such a big kick out of doing things like decoying and things like that. My goal isn't necessarily just to kill the biggest buck that I possibly can. I like the experience. And to me, having a buck come in with his ears pinned back, sidewalking, you know, is just the ultimate. That is the ultimate thrill to me. You know, a big mature buck doing that. Um, and that's probably, you know, why I haven't killed as many giants as some other guys out there is because they're, they do things maybe a little bit smarter. However, if your target buck who, you know, let's face it, you might've seen him or had him on camera plenty during September and October. And then all of a sudden that rut comes in and maybe you don't see him the entire rut. Maybe you see him one time during the entire rut. If he's cruising along by himself, obviously looking for does and out there, at you know, 150 yards or whatever, and I didn't have a grunt in my pocket, I'm going to be freaking furious mm -hmm. because that might be the only time that I see that sucker during that time frame, you know, yeah. and mm -hmm. 
that one little grunt placed at the right time can turn him around and get him to come through those trees and look for what's going on and might get you a shot opportunity. Um, I think that, you know, like I said, knowing when to use it, uh, being conservative with them, uh, not necessarily doing a lot of blind calling, but in certain situations, they're an extremely valuable tool. That's my two cents. Yeah, no, I building off of that 100%. My short answer is there is not a more cost effective yet more productive tool that you could take to the woods. I mean, your high end grunt tube is going to be in the seventies and you can buy a good one for under 20 bucks. Um, you know, I, I personally love the call. Like we talked about just now is you have to know when to do it. And that's yep. something that most people who do a lot of calling have screwed it up more times than they ever will tell you, you know, sure. but, um, a good grunt tube that has the ability. So like, I'll share an example from last season. Um, the snort wheeze in the ground tube. If I was, you know, I think that that's something we probably will talk about. What was, what, what call is it an estrus can? Is it a grunt tube? Is it one that has them all? I want a grunt tube. That's going to have a snort wheeze capability. And that's going to be able to get loud. Um, you know, there's a lot of ground tubes out there that if you put too much air pressure into that chamber, it's going to blow up, up. It's not going to sound natural. So that's something I consider. Uh, but last year, um, time of year, is very, very important. I'm not going to be blowing a grunt tube at a buck today, expecting him to be territorial and coming in, especially, and I think age class starts to, you get in the weeds of this conversation, no doubt. Sure. Um, you know, hunting setup matters. If you're talking about mature bucks, call it a buck, be prepared for him to circle downwind of you. And so you could, you know, your tree stand setup matters. Am I going to call it a deer? What's in between us? Can he see me? That's the first thing I'm going to, you know, if he's out in the field and you're on the field edge and you call directly at him, he's going to look at you and go, there's nothing there. And now you've kind of tipped him off that something's a little abnormal. So one thing that I like to do going back to that volume is calling away. I always call down and away and ideally back into some sort of cover because what's the goal? I'm trying to get him curious enough to come and check me out. Um, mm -hmm. I like to pick stand locations that if I know ahead of time, I'm going to call that wherever my sound is drifting to, he can't go around to get there. You know, is this a easy spot to get him to? Is this, you know, does he have any sort of uh, clues? I've watched him now in the field or I've seen him maybe, a, you know, an encounter for a while here. Um, you know, maybe he's giving me some clues as to how he's interacting with other bucks. That's one thing I'm always paying attention to. I think that certain deer have certain personalities. Some of them respond really well to calling and some you give them something like that and you might trigger some response of like, I already got my butt kicked. I'm out of here. So there's so mm -hmm. much information that I'm trying to use, you know, in that moment to decide to call blind calling. There's some spots I will do that because I know there's no chance he's going to get downwind of me. If he's going to come, he's going to come on the upwind side of me. You know, topography would be the huge things I'm looking for big ravines on my backside. I'm looking for, you know, something that's blocked anything behind me, whether those are deadfalls or, you know, maybe the fence crossings in front of me, you know, deer are creatures of they're lazy. They're not gonna, they will sometimes, I, I would argue least in Iowa, they're going to take the easiest route when they can, you know? So if you can put some sort of adversity in their way, you know, um, but that's grunting, you know, there's different types of grunts. 
you know, there's tendon grunts in the rut. There are territorial, you know, deeper buck roars, the snorwees, you know, the buck I killed last year, we called at him when he first stepped out and he, you know, that's another thing you got to pay attention to is they, they hear you more often than you think. One of the biggest mistakes I see is grunt that deer doesn't look at them and they just grunt and grunt and grunt, but those ears pin back and they heard you. They're just not acknowledging you yet. And there's a good chance that they're going to come at some point. So overcalling is something that I would always, if he doesn't respond, it's fine, but do not push it. So that deer, we called at him. He heard us. We saw that he goes out in the field, feeds, pushes some other bucks around. And then like that, he starts wheeling all the way around. Cause in the back of his head, he heard us. So I grunted at him again because then all of a sudden he's trying to get a little higher and we were using a decoy in this situation. So I felt comfortable sending some more stuff his way. Cause now he can eye contact, you know, make, he can see what's making the sound. Yeah, sure. Get away from us. Still nothing. I threw a snorwees at him and it was like, he thought about it. Snorwees hit him. It was game over. He was like, all right, man. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, you hit it perfectly, man, but like, there's no bigger thrill than calling. I mean, Oh, it's awesome. Being intentional to my last. Oh, go, go Go ahead, ahead, Tyler. I was just, I just real quick. Is the snort, what is the snortwees? What are you replicating there? What's it? What's he thinking whenever he hears that? It's called Fleming that. Yeah. That in human terms, I, I, I equate it to like, are you ready to fight or not? Let's go. What are you doing? Got it. Okay. Okay. I mean, yeah. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but that Danny, that's, that's certainly my, you know, like it's the final, like, I see you. I don't like that you're here. You know, let's, let's rumble. Um, Got it. Is that <laughs> it's, it's an aggressive call. Yeah. It's, it's an aggressive call. My last Iowa buck um, was a 12 point that we called meat wagon. And uh, the, we were getting toward the end of our hunt and my cameraman and the guy that was hosting me there, uh, he had to be out of the tree at one o'clock that day. No questions asked. He had family photos. It was not something that he could back out of without getting divorced. And at like 10 o'clock in the morning, that target buck meat wagon comes, comes in and beds down 60 yards from our tree stand. And literally, we're just waiting for him to do something, watching the time tick by. Oh, we got three hours where we got to be out, two hours before we got to be out, one hour before we got to be out. We don't want to climb down out of this tree with him right there, 60 yards from the, we're going to blow him up. You know, might kick him out of the area for a long time. I started grunting at him and he laid there just like Josh was talking about, just like he was completely he like he wasn't even turning his head and you know i i kept getting the volume a little louder a little louder and the closer the time got the more you know the louder i'd get and finally i got him to where he'd at least start turning his head and looking through the trees and we could barely see him through this brush through our binoculars well he wasn't even standing up out of his bed he wasn't doing anything so finally regardless whether he could see where we were at or anything else I started, I snort wheezed at him hard twice. He finally stood up out of his bed and he marched down 20 yards in front of the tree stand and I killed him. And with like 15 minutes left before we had to crawl out of that thing. And so it's like, 
it, it, it's enough. That's once again, one of those deer that just wouldn't have died without it. And, you know, on top of that, there's this extra satisfaction. We duped him, you know, and mm -hmm. it, it's, it's a really cool, really exciting way to do things in my opinion. That's cool. Yeah. And it goes back to the idea of blind calling. If, it, if you're calling in blind, you can't see how they're reacting. Right. I mean, yes. There's the idea of can come in on your downwind side. They could surprise you. You really don't know when that could, maybe they didn't even hear you, whatever. Yeah. But when calling, man, it's like, there's this progression of just analyze how he's responding to it. You know, you might actually witness that aggression just rising. You're just, you're, you're poking the bear. And then yeah. all of a sudden he just needs a little bit more. Again, you're not gonna be able to do that in the early season, more than likely. Now, you, I, I know some people who have used the grunt tube or even light rattling to mimic some sort of sparring. You know, there's a there's different levels to the aggression. You know, these deer make calls at all times of the year, right? Like yeah. a deer doesn't just grunt during the pre-rut and rut. Yeah. What he's doing, the communication that he's trying to invoke, you know, it does, it does vary. I take a grunt tube with me every every day. You know, even at this time of the year, am I going to use my grunt tube that often? Absolutely not. But like, if we had like, so we just had a great cold front blow through. You guys are probably getting it now, or just had it in Tennessee that night. If I would have seen my target buck based on where we were hunting, my wind was blowing right into a pond. I was absolutely going to be prepared to send just some sort of runt, some deep guttural territory because it, it's starting to trend upward right now. You know, we're into that yeah. middle part of October. That testosterone's rising. You're knowing the deer that I was hunting. He is the he's the man. You know, as Owen Riegler, one of our guys on Millis Whitetail, would say, the king buck. You know, he's the one in the area that's like, pick a fight with me, it's on. You know, yeah. and so mm -hmm. that northerly cold wind. You know, it was just like for a few days they were riled up. Now mm -hmm. it's stabilized again. It's hot or warmer. You know, and mm -hmm. I probably wouldn't do that. So. By grunt tube. That is the very short answer of all this, you know. Heck yeah, man. Ask cool. me questions. Yeah. It just sounds like a air on the side of more quiet, less calling just to prevent that. Him, I guess, downwinding, downwinding you unless you're in a good location. Well, yeah, you can actually perfect. do a lot on a map. I mean, I, I know you didn't necessarily ask that question, but, you know, there are so many tools available to us as hunters now that you can make a lot of stand setups based on if you can start to read topo lines, you don't mm -hmm. actually, don't get me wrong. You can never beat boots on the ground scouting. There's no doubt about that. But if you can learn how topo lines lay and start to really visualize, okay, a wind direction is going to do this and thermals. That's why we talked about earlier tree stand hunting. I would always prefer to be in a tree stand, especially in mornings because I can get away with some of my scent traveling in certain directions that I otherwise wouldn't be able to, but, um, you can, when you think about calling, you can actually plan that stuff. In my opinion, right where you're at right now, if you have your property and get on the phone with one of your buddies mm -hmm. and say, Hey, here's my property. What would you do? And I'll bet you some of your more experienced bow hunters, they could certainly tell you where not to go. And that's always half the battle in my opinion. So sure. Got it. Yeah. My, the only other question I had on the call side was it could calling potentially be based on the environment and the time of the year. And we touched right on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then the, uh, kind of last group that would be like the camera group. Um, are they worth having for beginner hunters and uh, are they necessary from just starting and then the different kinds of cameras? 
Want me to go first on this? Okay. So game cameras, are they necessary? Absolutely not. And I think that the coolest thing about bow hunting, you know, I, like I said, I'm only 27. Uh, I've been very fortunate to be around some of the biggest buck killers out there. You know, trail cameras are an incredible tool. Yes. But the beauty of bow hunting is it's a progressional thing. You know, what your goal might be today is going to change next year and the year after. And at the end of the day, being able to have woodsmanship, I think is always going to trump the ability to run a trail camera because, and frankly, even though it's extra information, they still miss things. You know, I can't tell you how many hunts I have where I've got a trail camera on a crossing and they cross five yards this way or five yards that way. I think generationally speaking, it's become something that is far too much depended on. You know, I've sure. got like, I didn't get photos. I'm not going to hunt. <laughs> yeah. And I think that that is a very big mistake. So, you know, are they worth having for beginner hunters? I'm putting my dollars elsewhere. I'm putting my dollars towards, like we talked about, good clothing, a bow I'm confident in, a grunt tube. All of those things are going to be more important to me. Game cameras are entertaining. There's nothing more awesome than waking up and was he there? You know what I mean? But when it comes to bow hunting and just experiencing what it has to offer that I would argue, you know, other forms of hunting don't, which is just close proximity to an animal. I would hundred percent say they're not necessary per se. Now, as you progress further into it, and maybe you're just like the rest of us who are crazy and financially irresponsible and you just, <laughs> spend your money, man, they do have some super, you know, awesome perks to it, you know, and you could talk about out of state hunting. I'm sure that that's a huge thing. You know, when, when am I going to go hunt Kansas? They can tell you, you know, some really good, you know, real time informational tactics that, if you have a family and you got to leave or you got to choose vacation time or, you know, there's, there's benefits, but yeah, necessary, probably not in my opinion. I'm hundred percent with Josh on this. Like I, man, I did lots of bow hunting, the majority of my bow hunting career without game cameras. And, you know, that's not to say that I don't have a whole of you know, right here, right now at home, I've got a dozen of them out. You know, um, they are very entertaining, um, when it, I think that they're more useful during the early and the late season when deer patternable and doing the same things. Um, if you're hunting anywhere is near the rut, I think that, uh, they're good at telling you, uh, you're showing you a deer that might be around, um, but not necessarily how you're going to kill him because there's too many factors that are completely unpredictable that time of year. Um, but, uh, it's funny. I've got a buddy that, uh, films for a guy who is basically, you know, going out to their box blinds that they have over their perfectly groomed food plots with their ambush cover to be able to get in and out of the box blind undetected. And, you know, they're basically sitting there waiting for a morning cell phone photo of a big buck to appear in one of these food plots. And if they don't get it, they're not going out and hunting. And when they do get it, they go get in that box blind and they sit there for that evening and they wait for that buck to come back out on that food plot, hoping that he bedded down some, you know, somewhere's close and a good percentage of the time they're killing him and they kill some really big bucks. 
But my buddy who's been doing that for a long time now says, man, what happened just going and finding some scrapes and setting up a tree stand? You know, he misses that and he misses, yeah. you know, being outside of that box plant and hearing the birds and hearing the leaves rustle with the deer coming in, you know, and things like that, you know, to me, um, I don't know. I don't, I, I, I certainly enjoy using cell cameras, but, or, or, or game cameras, period. I, like Josh said, they're very, very entertaining. Um, but depending upon what your goal is, um, they're, definitely definitely not necessary yep yeah well on the for the last question i had was just uh like i just wrote out kind of shooting at a practice target and an animal stirred different adrenaline responses and uh this seems unique to me because as a competitor uh like when three two one go starts in crossfit or you know just as an athlete in general that that adrenaline on game day is very different than you know practice or training and uh, just coming from two experienced bow hunters, uh, what are maybe something that goes through your head as you process, you know, let's say that the animal that I'm after steps out or something that I've been working towards steps out. What are some tips you guys would have maybe for me and then for everyone else just on like controlling those nerves and that adrenaline and just what's on your mind, you know, three, two, one. Okay. The time's come. What are we thinking? Josh tell him this because in 35 years i haven't freaking figured it out man <laughs> <laughs> that's why you keep going back that's right man i'd like yeah yeah dude, uh, i still don't have that mastered go for it josh yeah no me either first and foremost um you know i feel like i've learned so much more about this question through my mistakes than i have through my success uh a routine is where i'm at like today i don't how many years have i bow hunted 14 at this point the most important thing, I mean, I can't tell you how many big bucks I missed as a kid. My dad put me in position after position and I never really struggled to shoot at a doe, but I missed literally every single buck and I, I couldn't figure it out. And it wasn't. And so I, I played football and kicked in football and my coach was like, I missed field goal. He's like, keep your head down, follow through. It's going to go through the uprights. Don't look up, celebrate yeah. after. And for whatever reason, that was the epiphany moment. I was like, Oh, that's why I'm missing all these deer I'm shooting at because I'm not focusing on my routine. And so, you know, I'd always peek to see if I hit the animal or hit the target. Wasn't doing that on a target. Wasn't doing that on does, but when I came to a buck and that adrenaline was there at that point, I was just so, you know, focused on trying to shoot my first deer, my first buck. And I screwed mm -hmm. it up every time because I was so worried about that end result. But today I, for me, when a buck steps out and I know I'm going to shoot him, I start talking to myself and it's, it's how I calm myself down is it may be the same thing at CrossFit is like, I, I go through, make sure my grip's correct. Hold your spot. Don't peek, hold your spot. Don't peek. And I do that when I'm practicing now, you know, that, that was something that, you know, probably mistakenly is I always waited for the moment to occur mm -hmm. to start trying those habits. Well, now when I'm, whether it's, I'm shooting a target, whether I'm shooting a doe, a turkey, a buck, I try to make that thing the exact same, you know, Owen Regler again, I keep bringing him up. Cause we just, you know, this whole thing killed two fifteen. you know, he's been visualizing that moment since he found those sheds last spring. And I can't tell you, he shot every day. He shot ASA tournaments at any local archery event he could get into. He said it up. We just did a podcast last night and he made a comment where he's like, if you've never shot in front of your peers, you can compare that to shooting a 200 inch buck because it's mm -hmm. you know, 
you're competitive. You don't want to be in last place. So just trying to mimic that moment, you know, especially as you get to deer season, like let's say a few weeks out, shoot one arrow a night and see how much more focus you have to bring to the table. And so just visualizing the moment for me as what's helped me the most, you know, it's not a surprise or a shock when that happens, when I sit down in a stand or I'm sitting in a blind, I'm not there on my phone, just passing the time. I'm taking in every exact spot. Where could he come out? What angle am I going to shoot him at? Is his shoulder going to be forward again? Talk about mistakes that I've made. Like there's a lot of things to evaluate when that moment comes. So if you want to stem off the adrenaline is always going to be there, but it's no, you just have to be able to contain it and turn it into focus. And that's, that's started to work for me more so than especially the past. So, yeah, I, I, like I said, uh, I still haven't figured this out and it is, (laughs) it's kind of like the more you will this to happen, the more you want it, the more pressure is on you, you know, to, to make sure that it happens. And, uh, and it's this trick that you play on yourself where you trick yourself into letting it happen instead of making it happen. And it's funny because over my career, I've noticed that, you know, when something happens fast, all of a sudden, bam, here's a buck. I need to reach and grab my bow. I need to pivot. I need to get the string back and I need to fire and I don't have time to think about it. I do. I perform pretty well, but if I have to watch that animal coming and especially for a long period of time. Now, if I'm thinking to myself, okay, he's probably going to come through here and I've set myself up. Okay. The shot's going to happen right there. And he does exactly he reads the script and he comes in right where I think he's going to. I'm usually okay. You know, I, things go pretty well, but if at the last minute he turns left instead of right, now he's headed over here toward my wind. That big old freaking panic button just gets mashed and mm-hmm. the alarms start going off. And I'm like, holy crap, you know, and, and you're trying to make these split second decisions and read body language and all of these things all at the same time. And I just turn to goo sometimes and I've screwed up some pretty good hunts, you know, because of that inability to keep myself calm in that situation. That's a gift. And some guys have it given from God and some guys just have to try and develop it, you know, over time. And I'm one of those who have, you know, constantly battled that, you know, and that I, that adrenaline just makes me shake like a 12 year old with a bow in his hand for the very first time sometimes. Um, But it's part of what keeps me coming back. Yeah, sure. Danny, do you think it's fair to say that repetition time on the range, I think that prepares you for the muscle memory, you know, about like that perfect scenario, you draw back anchor points, everything's clear minded. I think that that's where you're going to gain your benefit as far as just, it's not something new, you know, exactly what you do. CrossFit's probably the same. If you have technique, you know, that's why I talked Mm -hmm. about going by your bow have everything, pay attention to every minor detail, anchor points, draw lengths proper, poundage is light enough so that you can do it in those moments without thought. But yeah. the second that everything goes haywire, that's when a routine, I think, can, because it's like now you're focused on that routine for me. Sure. 
than so much of like the animal. And I think that that would be something, I don't know if it's one of your questions, but you really got to pay attention to angles and understanding the anatomy of a buck. You know what I mean? Yeah. Sure. Panic and you shoot. And just because you put your pin in the arrow, hit in the right spot. Now we're in a different game as far as, are you going to recover them? So, um, visualization, I, I believe in that. I really do. Practice yeah. on the range gets me ready to perform. Visualizing the moment allows me to stay cool, calm, collected when things don't go the way I thought they would. Man, that your experience as a place kicker too is something that is, I, I'd never really thought about that. It's but the crazy. analogy there I, is that is perfect training for for something like this. I mean, yeah. I mean that's perfect. It was it was the weirdest moment. Like when I think about that coach, I mean, he was my track coach, he was my football coach, but you know, he just always would drill into me. He's like, worry about the good times after. Do your job in the moment and develop the ability to mentally tune out. Yeah. And you're always gonna be more accurate. You know, well, it's like I hurdled in track, kind of the same thing. Everything always came down to form. It wasn't if I tried harder or if I wanted it more, if I could remain to the form and the technique. And that, I feel like that's what archery is. I mean, when it comes down to making a good shot, it, you have to practice how you want to play. Well, and the, what you mentioned earlier about peaking, I, yeah. I feel like when you are actually shooting at a target with hair on it, that's living and breathing. That mm -hmm. is the number one thing that we do differently than any other time. And when Josh is talking about peaking, he's talking about moving your bow out of the way right after the shot so that you can see where that arrow impacted because everything in your head is telling you that you want to see where that arrow goes. You know what Look I mean? Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I try my hardest to do in practice so that I do automatically do it when I'm shooting at an actual animal is I just try to make sure that I'm watching the arrow impact the target through my site housing. Mm, yeah. That's and good. When, when I do it well enough, I can actually see the arrow come up from the bottom of the site housing, reach almost the top on a longer shot and then come back down into the target, you know, where, it, mm. where it needs to be. And it, it, it requires you to hold your bow arm still and to leave it where it's at after the shot. But and and there's certainly a lot of good archers that I know that don't do that. They kind of they let the bow kind of fall forward in their hand or they have a, a reaction afterwards that makes it so that they're watching the arrow or they're watching their target after the shot, but they're not keeping it right there. For me, watching it impact through the site housing ensures that I kept that follow through and that I didn't try to peak. And that's one of the last things that I tried my hardest to think about when I'm actually shooting in an animal is if I get to see the arrow impact, number one, I try not to concern myself with that, that much, but if I get to see it, it better be through that site housing. And that means I didn't do any of those things. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's a great, that is great. That's a great applicable tool for even like practicing. Yeah. It's hard to do. Like, like I said, when you're on the range and you're, you're, you're trying to do it, when you do it well, you're actually going to see the arrow rise up from the bottom of the side aperture and then drop back down into your target, you know, that's great. and yeah, that's cool. if you can replicate that on animals and you know that you're doing it, you know, the same way that you are in practice.
Yeah. Uh, another thing just sharing from a screw up myself here is uh, a buck two years ago, 20 yards. I hit him super high and right in the shoulder. And luckily, I mean, by the grace of God, I'm somehow able to kill this deer, got in far enough arterial and he was expired. But I could not figure out how I could possibly shoot so far and up into the right at 20 yards. It's like, how can you screw up that bad? My pin was not there. And luckily with filming hunts, you can always micro analyze every aspect, second angles. Do not overlook this, your, your grip. Yeah. And you, the reason why I bring this up is you talk about adrenaline, right? Well, in that moment, you got all this stuff coursing through your veins. Mm-hmm. What I had done was when I had shot, I had anticipated shooting and I just gripped my bow, sent my, you know, riser up mm-hmm. and took hit, you know. And so again, going back to that whole, what is your routine? You know, now I'm always on top of the whole follow through, don't look, hold your spot. I'm very adamant about keeping my grip loose. I can always feel it, you know, not that little bubble that you can get on a lot of sites nowadays. You can see it move if you're gripping, you know, and sure. Uh, that is one for me that more times than I can count, even shooting. Sometimes I just get whatever, you know, I noticed something went errant 90% of the time. It's going to be my grip. And that's something I've been putting a lot of focus into. Cool. Uh, and you, you mentioned that you're also a lot of times wearing clothes. Nobody goes out there in the summertime yep. bundled up in all the clothes right. that they have on when yeah. and, and it, it's cost the gloves and the clothes cost me a big Iowa buck just a few years ago i mean directly 100 percent cost me it um and so it's a it's a good idea i know that you're not going to go out there and you know 85 degrees 90 degrees with the humidity down there in tennessee with all of your stuff that you're going to bundle up in but before you go out in the season man put everything on that you're going to have on and mm-hmm. sit on a bucket or sit on a target and you know, I usually try to shoot from a standing position, tree stand, but you don't always get that chance. Depends upon sure. I'm, I'm standing most of the time, but there are times where I'm sitting down up there. You need to replicate that stuff and make sure mm-hmm. that the gloves that you're going to have on aren't going to interfere with something that your anchor point isn't going to feel weird. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, very, very, very important. Yeah. If you could find that, like, right risen uh locations at your local archery range like iowa and the dnr do a fantastic job there's quite a few locations here but like they've got 15 foot elevated platforms you can go up on awesome and a lot of times folks think about you know worrying about that 30 40 20 yard shot the hardest shot in my opinion is the five and the ten yeah about your anchor points when you're flat standing everything's good you start getting at this angle and you're yeah from here to here above your cheek a quarter inch you just you tweak one thing and your you know your anchors or how you're gripping mm-hmm. everything changes it's off yeah that's true so replicate as many areas as you can when shooting that's that's always sure that's helpful. good well guys uh it's about time that we wrap this one up um hopefully that answered a bunch of your questions tyler um Man, we'd love to hear how the season goes. Be really cool to have you on here to tell a story about a big old buck. Um, If there's anything in particular that was answered during this podcast that helped you out more than uh, more than the other things that that applied to your hunt, um, 
we're looking forward to hearing a story about something like that. Um, but, and thank you for coming on, Josh. Uh, yeah. man, I, I really feel like you added a lot to this thing. Um, you got some really good insight and I know you're humble about things, but dude, you are an, you, you are a whitetail expert at this point. I'm going to, I'm going to say it right now. I've declared it. Um, so, but, uh, anything in closing, Josh? No, man. I mean, I think, uh, I hope that I, you can talk about getting a check back in. I would love to do this every year and yeah. just watch that bow hunting journey. I mean, there's, there's nothing better, man, than that first bow kill. And oh. I mean, share it, relish it with as many friends and family as you can and, you know, get as many folks into it as you can as well. I mean, archery is just, whether it's archery, the sport or bow hunting, you yeah. know, to it, man. And please don't ever hesitate to reach out. If you ever have any questions, love to help. Thank you guys so much. Appreciate you guys having me on and filling all this uh, knowledge up. Hopefully some of you out there found some of these questions uh, applicable to, to the things that you have uh, thought about and things that you have coming up. Hope everybody enjoyed it and we'll catch you on the next one. Appreciate the opportunity. Thanks guys. Later guys. Appreciate you guys.